0: Father, um, my uh, 10 10 or 12 hours or so uh, on this sermon are in vain. Um, The 25 to 32 minutes uh, that I'll preach this and these will listen to it are in vain unless uh, you fill us. Lord, we really, these really are just empty words without your spirit. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, make applications that I could never make uh, in individual circumstances uh, in this text. Uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, last week, uh, we did. We started on Nehemiah. And uh, yes, it is still Old Testament year. Uh, this is Old Testament year. Last year was a New Testament year. Next year will be a, a New Testament year. But this one's Old Testament. We just tackled uh, some smaller books, we had Esther, Ezra. Uh, and now, Nehemiah, all these are uh, what you call exilic, during the years of the exile is what that means, or post-exilic, meaning after the years of the exile. And so, we're sticking with Nehemiah here. And what we learned about Nehemiah last week is that he's a cutbearer. Uh, a cutbearer uh, was a, a position of prestige. Uh, this was the most trusted servant of the king, of the king of Persia. His name's Artaxerxes. Uh, he's the most trusted servant, but he's just that. He's a servant. He's a slave. He didn't choose this employment but it is an honorable one. He's got to be the one who tastes anything that the king tastes before the king tastes it. That way, if someone's trying to poison the king, they're going to poison the cupbearer first. So it's someone that the king trusts a ton. And while he's a cupbearer, and he's a Jew, many of uh, his friends have gone back with Ezra to help rebuild the temple. Uh, The temple has been rebuilt. And, uh, and, and Nehemiah wants to know how his friends back in Jerusalem are doing. He says, hey, how are they doing? And he, and he hears back and says, hey, uh, things aren't, aren't great. Uh, the walls, the gates are, are torn down. They're, they're very vulnerable to outside attack. And this really uh, hits Nehemiah in the sweet spot. He, it stirs him because he loves these people. He doesn't want them to be in this vulnerable position. He's also stirred to repent. He knows that the reason uh, that God's people are in the situation they're in was because it was their fault. It wasn't Babylon's fault, the, 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 the kingdom that tore down Jerusalem originally. It wasn't their fault, really. It's not Persia's fault, the ones who take over Babylon, and now there are many Jews who are still, uh, s- still captive there in Persia. It's not Persia's fault that they're captive slaves. It's their fault. They're the ones who were unfaithful to the Lord, and the Lord sent into exile And so he repents on behalf of not just himself, but all the people. And then he goes about, after he hears this news, he repents to the Lord, he praises for a hundred days. A hundred days that the king, the one he reports to, might have favor on him. And by favor, I think all that favor means is that the king would release him from his duties. Because what Nehemiah wants to do is Nehemiah wants to lead the charge to rebuild these walls and these gates, but he gets way more than he asked for because when he asked permission, he ends up uh, with Artaxerxes giving him a blank check, saying, "Hey, I'm going to flip the bill to build the walls and the gates." Nehemiah wasn't expecting that, but that's his work. Now, I don't think many of you—I mean, maybe you're in here. Uh, Herb Gettys—that's uh, the fence building company. I don't know if you've noticed. Herb Getty's name is everywhere if you look close to it. Uh, but he, he, that, that company builds fences. But you're probably not building fences for a living, are you? You're probably not a gate construction kind of person, right? So what does work look like for you? That was the calling of Nehemiah. But if we zoom out a little bit biblically to say, what does work really mean? Well, if we look at the scriptures, what we'll find out is that means more than just making money. It means more than the thing that you call your job. In the Bible, work is something that requires energy and that brings the new heavens and the new earth to bear today. That's what work is biblically. But many of us think work is the result of the fall of mankind, right? We think, oh gosh, Mondays are the worst because I've got to go back to work. It must be because of the sin of Adam and Eve, just like everything else is Adam and Eve's fault. I guess this is their fault too. Well, it's not true. Because before the fall, Adam and Eve worked. They worked and tended the garden. They named all the animals. Their work was satisfying. It was delightful. They put their head on the pillow at night thinking, today was so great. I can't wait for tomorrow to get after it. The reason that work for us is so hard is because of the curse. See, one of the consequences of the fall was that we wouldn't have purposeful, delightful work, but that we would have painful, difficult work. Part of the curse is, in pain you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Ever since, Mondays have been tough. But God intends to redeem our work. In fact, we have visions of work in the new heavens and new work. Revelation 22, we see people working. So, if work was good in the beginning and we're going to work in the new heavens and the new earth, then what does work look like now? Well, that's a really relevant question when we get to Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah's been called to work, and if we're going to be called to some kind of restorative work, we need to know what that's going to look like. And that's where our text will take us today. So, let's read Nehemiah 2, verses 9 to 20, there in your bulletin. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Oronite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So when I went to Jerusalem, and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned." And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanbalat the Oronite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will rise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." The word of the Lord. (laughs) So right here we see the nature of restorative work. Uh, Verses uh, 9 through 16, you see the praising of the need. 17 to 20, you see communicating the vision. And then what you don't see uh, here that I'm going to cover briefly is all of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is delegating the work. So praising the need, communicating vision, and delegating the work. So praising the need. Verse 9 to 16. See, Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, and immediately you see here that he faces opposition. He's got these two brothers, Sanballat and Tobiah, who make him feel like an outsider. And so he knows he's in a dangerous spot. He knows he's going to have to go into stealth mode by night. He knows he's going to have to go in secret. He knows he's going to have to find out with his own two eyeballs what's going on with the gates and with the wall. He knows where it needs to be when it's all built. He knows that it's going to be about a mile, a mile around. It's going to be three to four feet thick, and it's going to be 15 to 20 feet high. He knows that's where they're headed, but he's got to see how bad off it really is. He knows it's in bad shape. He knows that from Nehemiah 1 verse 2 when the people came back from Jerusalem to tell him that things weren't good. And he makes it about, during this night, he makes it about halfway around, and then he gets all the information he needs. But he's going to need good information because he's going back to a group, a discouraged group of Jews. They lack vitality. They lack this vigor to get the work done. And if he goes out without firsthand knowledge of what he's seen, they're going to laugh him out of town. He cannot be the idealistic dreamer. He's going to have to give them something realistic because they're going to be able to smell out a phony. So he goes and he communicates to them very clearly what the problem is. And last week, what we saw was that Nehemiah prayed for 100 days before he went to the king. And if you were like me last week, you were like, "Marsh, I get it. I, I'm really bad at praying. I do want to pray better. It's, it, it's still really close to the first of the year, so maybe I can re-up on my New Year's resolution to be a praying person. But where's the place for being practical? I'm a practical kind of person and I'd like to be a part of this kingdom work. Is there a place for me? And the answer is yes. You see it right here in these verses. Nehemiah actually did something besides pray. And that was walk around the city to see the need. See, many of us, we're very practical and we do want to use that in kingdom work. That's a really good thing. But there's something that I want to note. Shockingly, It only takes 52 days for God's people to rebuild the wall. That means that Nehemiah prayed twice as long as he worked. So it was part of the reason that it got done so quickly that they planned well? Sure. But think about it. He only spent one night planning. He only made it halfway around the wall. Therefore, I think it's really important to say that restorative work always includes planning, but prayer is the engine behind Nehemiah's success. So the first step in doing good restorative work is prayerful planning. And the second step is communicating vision, verses 17 to 20. After playing the role of night rider to see what he's dealing with, he's ready now to go before the people. He's ready to go before them, motivate them to what God's called them to do. And notice how he does it. In verse 17, he does it by fully identifying with his people. Look at the pronouns in verse 17. He says, You see the trouble we are in. If I were Nehemiah, Nehemiah's never been to Jerusalem, by the way, more than likely, he's never been to Jerusalem. If I were him, I would have said, you see the trouble you are in. But he's only been there a day, and he's willing to say, you see the trouble that we are in. Big difference, isn't there? And then verse 17, he says, let us, not let you, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He's willing to get in the game. Then you see that we, not you, may no longer suffer derision. So you see the pronouns tell the story. Just as Nehemiah repented on behalf of not just himself, but all of God's people, he's also willing to say that their problem with the walls and the gates is his problem, too. It Reminds me of Winston Churchill at the very start of World War II in his opening speech. Here's what he said. I have nothing but blood, toil, sweat, and tears. Now, if I were Winston Churchill, if I were the prime Minister of England back then, I wouldn't have said that. I would have said, "Man, if things get bad around here if we keep getting bombed like this, I'm sure there's a private island somewhere that I can hole up in." But he doesn't. Winston Churchill is willing to say, "I'm willing to suffer with you if you're going to suffer." Nehemiah is saying the same thing. It's a really key lesson in leadership, isn't it? He got in there and worked with them. He wasn't going to risk death, or he wasn't going to have them risk death if he wasn't willing to risk it himself. And none of us here are likely leaders with this kind of audience, but the same principle applies. Think about it. It's really easy to let your voice be heard about some social ill without stepping up and being a leader and doing something about it, isn't it? It's really easy for me as a pastor, as a leader, to say, read your Bible, pray, repent, trust Jesus. But am I willing to do those things myself? Say, See, fully identifying with those you lead is of utmost importance. Whether people report to you in your job or in your role within your family. It's important to fully identify with your people. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, Nehemiah encourages them with God's grace to him. Do you see it? what Nehemiah does is he tells them about the interchange that he has with King Artaxerxes. He tells them about what happened back there in Persia. He tells them that how God miraculously showed up in that conversation with Artaxerxes. Remember, Nehemiah went into the conversation hoping beyond hope that the king would release him from his duties. But he didn't expect for the king to offer to pay for it. So if God did that for Nehemiah, maybe God will show up in unexpected ways for them as they rebuild the walls. What Nehemiah does is he voices God's goodness to him personally, and that proves to be very persuasive. Think about it. Nehemiah could have chosen a, a variety of communication strategies, couldn't he? I mean, if I were him, I would have preached. I wouldn't have shared a story. I would have brought up Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three, God's promise to Abraham. And I would have laid into those people with everything Genesis 12, one to three's got. Genesis 12, one to three, God says, I will bless you. Hey, people, you people that have built the temple and don't have walls and gates and are vulnerable to attack, God has blessed you. It says, God has blessed us. Let's get to work. Yet Nehemiah doesn't preach. He shares. He shares his own personal story of wonder of God's grace to him. So what's God's story of grace to you, brother and sister? I'm not saying the scriptures aren't powerful, but God's story in your life will woo people to step out in faith and experience the surprising nature of his grace. And that's when they sign on the dotted line. That's when they say, "We're in. We'll get to work with you, Nehemiah." So you've got all good restorative work. All of it includes appraising the need. All of it incorporates communicating a vision. And lastly, we see it's about delegation. I know I didn't read chapter three to you, but if you had your if you have your Bible and and you look through down chapter three, it, it wouldn't take you long to see what chapter three is really all about. It just looks like a really long list of names. It's crazy how much of the Bible is just long list of names. But what we learn are the people who get to work with Nehemiah. We see there's 41 different groups that get this job done. And those 41 groups are all kinds of different folks. You got priests, you got Levites, you got temple servants, you got goldsmiths, merchants, officials, women. You've got men from Jericho, Mizpah, Tekoa, and Gibeon. You got all kind of folks show up for this work. And the crazy thing to me is that these aren't master masons. Goldsmiths deal with little bitty things. Priests don't know how to use their hands. Period. But they're all joining in this work. All kinds of people are deployed to this really important project. I think it was their diversity that was part of the secret to them getting the job done. But I think another part of their success is the smart way that they're delegated. You see in chapter 3 that the priests and the temple servants, that the part of the wall they rebuilt just happened to be the part of the wall that was near the temple. Part where they worked. Jedediah rebuilt the wall opposite his house. Benjamin and Hassab, they rebuilt a portion of the wall in front of their house. So it, it's going to ensure good work since people were personally invested in having the wall near their work or near their home be well built so that they would be properly protected. Pretty good idea on Nehemiah's part, don't you think? Delegation. But here's the thing about appraising needs, communicating vision, and delegation of work. It sounds an awful lot like the Gatton School of Business about 15 plus years ago. You know, I was a business major. I, I, I have a business management degree from UK, And I can't tell you how many books I read that sound just like everything I just told you. The skills of appraising me, communicating vision, and delegation, they're all common grace precepts about work. But but there's nothing particularly gospel about them. In fact, some of the most vile leaders in history have these three elements down pat in their leadership. That's why they were so successful. So the question really becomes, what is your motivation for putting these precepts to use? It really comes down to whose kingdom are you trying to build? Yours or Jesus's? Let me give you some examples of what it might look like to build your kingdom. Let's talk about those of us who are parents. Some of us are those kinds of people. We're trying to build children, raise children. And you're here more than likely because you want to raise your children for Jesus. But what does that really mean? Well, unfortunately, many of us, we don't want to parent for Jesus. What we really want to do is that we parent as a form of self-validation. We define ourselves by the achievements, or the lack thereof, of our children. We define ourselves by the behavior, good or bad, of our children. We define ourselves by our child's ability to stay on their sleep schedule or not. If little Johnny sleeps good, if little Johnny makes good grades, then he must come from really good stock, namely me. If, if Susie sweeps the swim meet, we must be doing something right. Brothers and sisters, that's garbage. When we parent in that way, we forget that our only job as parents is to sow seeds of the gospel, to water them through prayer and by loving them and believing that God's the one who's going to cause the growth. See, remember the parable of the prodigal son? The father in this parable, by all accounts, seems like a great parent, like a model parent, but think about what kind of kids he raised. He had a wild child and a self righteous prig for boys. That's what he had. So, being a good parent, building Christ's kingdom, means you pursue, you pray, you long, you wait, you hope, you rejoice. But we don't use our kids to give us a sense of meaning, lest we build our own kingdom. Think about your career. This story I'm about to tell is about a Christian leader, but you'll see how it ties in for all of us, whether you do uh, ministry or not. This week I ran across an article of a, not a super famous person, but uh, somebody who was in a really key leadership role. And he was fired this week. And um, I read the article, and the reason he was fired wasn't for his Uh, any sexual misconduct or the stuff that you usually read about pastors getting fired for. Uh, He was fired for bullying, intimidation, overbearing demands in the name of mission, rejection of critical feedback, and an expectation of unconditional loyalty. That's what he was fired for. But at the same time, those who were interviewed who had been in his ministry for a long time said that he was the most gifted preacher they had ever heard. Those they interviewed said, yes, we were on the uh, bad end of his leadership, but we can't deny that this man's been used by God and has been gifted. So how did he turn out that way? Well, as a minister, I I think I know what's going on. (laughs) I think he's just trying to stave off these feelings of worthlessness. See, the thinking goes, at least for me, it goes, if I'm having an impact in ministry, then I must be okay. The more impact I make, the more okay I am. Now, brothers and sisters, you don't have to be a minister to think like that, right? And if you think that way in your job, the more you succeed, the more you make. The more promotions you get, the more people that pat you on the back, the more okay I must be. Now, that's building your own kingdom talk right there. See, all of us, we want to build our own kingdom. But something's going to have to change at a heart level for us to want to build Jesus' kingdom instead of ours. A switch has to flip. And what's going to flip the switch is the gospel. See, the gospel says says this. When we see that Jesus was willing to lose his kingdom in order to gain us, then we're free to lose our kingdoms because we've gained him. Let me say it again. When we see that Jesus was willing to lose his kingdom in order to gain us, then we're free to lose our kingdoms because we've gained him. See, Jesus built the whole cosmos. Jesus sustains the whole cosmos by His very Word. Jesus came and exercised authority over nature and over humanity. And you are not going to find that kind of power anywhere else. I I, I know we think that athletes and entertainers have power. I know that we think that politicians have power. I know that we think that people who are ultra-wealthy have power, but none of them can create the world. None of them can sustain the world with his word. None of them exercise authority and creation like Jesus did. See, Jesus is more powerful than you could ever imagine. But he gave it all up. He let weak Roman soldiers arrest him and nail him to the cross. He let these pitiful Jews who came that he came to save revile him as a wretched criminal. Yet it's because he was willing to empty himself of all power that he was given the name that's above every name. Brother and sister, the name above every name, now that's some kind of recognition right there. That's recognition on a cosmic scale. That's the recognition we all long for as we pine away in our jobs, as we pine away as students, as we pine away in our parenting, as we pine away in our work here at this church. We long for that kind of recognition. We want some voice to pronounce to us that we're okay and that we matter. Last night uh, our two youngest, Audrey and Brooks, had gone to bed. Eden had stayed up with us. Eden's 10, and um, she could stay up a little later than the younger two. And uh, we asked her what she wanted to do last night. Sometimes she wants to play Uno. Uh, other times she wants to watch TV. Well, last night she found a show she really don't want to watch called Lego Masters. So, we watched Lego Masters last night and I was enthralled. There's only one, ep- if you have Hulu, there's only one episode on there. The next one comes out on Wednesday. <laughs> but as I'm watching uh, Lego Masters, there are several different teams. They're making these huge Lego projects and there's this team of judges that are telling them how they did. And you can tell that these contestants, they badly, badly want the affirmation of these judges. These contestants are like putty in the judges' hands because they so badly want their affirmation. And don't we do the same thing? Don't we do the same thing in our work? Don't we do the same thing with our parenting, our jobs, our homemaking, our reputations, and even our bodies? We just want recognition, Yet we won't get the recognition we long for there. We only get the recognition we long for when we come under Jesus' accomplishments and under what he's already built. It's only there that we can be free. It's only there that we can be fired unjustly. It's only there that we can be looked over for a promotion and wake up the next day with our our head held high because our worth doesn't come from our accomplishments. It comes from Jesus. It's only there that our children can turn out like we had not hoped, and us not tie our status in life to how they ended up, because we are so firmly rooted in Jesus. See, when this sinks real deep into your heart, you're going to be free. You're going to be free from underworking. You'll be free from being bored because you're going to see that all you do in Jesus' name is not in vain. You're going to be free from overworking and try to find your identity in your work. Because you know that all the work that needs to be done has already been accomplished in Jesus' May this be so for us, brothers and sisters. Amen.